You're listening to the On The Go with VAO news podcast covering the month of March 2017. Hello, welcome to the podcast, everyone. Each month, the Virtual Acquisition Office team consolidates and summarizes the key takeaways from the most important acquisition-related policies, guidance, regulatory changes, and more. Thanks for tuning in today. Coming to you from the VAO, I'm Brittany Shapiro. Joining me this month are my VAO teammates, Derek Curran, Gloria Sochan, and Scott Cox to deliver our VAO team review where we look at top developments that occurred in March 2017. Take it away, Dara. And we're going to get started with a review of what is happening at the topmost levels of the government. We all know that big changes are underway, sourcing from both the new Trump administration and from the Republican majority Congress. We'll be discussing several of those developments today, beginning with a look at one of the biggest plans for the coal that powers the federal steam engine, a.k.a. the good old greenback. President Donald Trump released a high-level skinny budget blueprint in mid-March that outlined where the administration would like to allocate discretionary spending for fiscal 2018. As you are no doubt already aware, unless you are at DHS or DOD, the news so far is not very good. The White House has proposed increasing base defense discretionary spending levels by $54 billion, but then they would balance the scales by offsetting exactly that amount from non-defense programs. Consequently, pretty much everyone is going to be feeling a squeeze, but some will be worse off than others. The Environmental Protection Agency, Departments of State, Agriculture, Labor, and Health and Human Services would be receiving the largest reductions. The administration also sent a separate request to Congress asking for $30 billion for DOD in fiscal 2017 and an extra $3 billion for DHS. The DOD funds will be allocated to improving readiness, expanding the military, and adding $5.1 billion to the Overseas Contingency Operations Budget to support efforts in Afghanistan and to combat ISIS. The money for DHS would go toward construction of a wall and other protective technologies along the border with Mexico, more immigration agents, and expanded facilities for detainees. The White House noted they plan to partially offset these immediate fiscal costs with $18 billion trimmed from non-defense discretionary accounts, but no specific targets were identified. Nearly 20 agencies were also proposed for out-and-out defunding, Though it's important to note, uh, with all of these numbers, Congress has the final say in who gets money and how much. So we may not need to kiss Sesame Street goodbye just yet. Uh, another moving part that will affect the eventual appropriations for 2018, starting on October 1st, it's sequestration time again. Let's all groan together now. Uh, even though some of these numbers are quite shocking, they also don't yet balance the federal budget. According to OMB, the administration is hoping to develop a plan that balances income and outflow over a decade or so, but that won't be part of the fiscal year 2018 plan. The full budget and all of its details should be released in mid-May. On the 27th, President Trump signed into law a measure that will block implementation 
of the Obama Administration's Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces Executive Order and corresponding final rule, which was aimed at ensuring the federal government did not contract with firms that repeatedly violated labor laws. The rule would have required contracting officers to consider a firm's record in this regard as part of their responsibility determination for new awards of $500,000 or more. Opponents claimed the rule was tantamount to blacklisting and could penalize firms without due process and would have caused additional cost, time, and effort to implement for both contracting personnel and contractors. Congress subsequently passed a resolution of disapproval to block the legislation, and that resolution has been signed by the President. The other major news development of the month was President Trump making good on his promise for a government reorganization called for in an executive order on March 13th. He specifically is looking to streamline operations and eliminate unnecessary agencies, components, and programs. The major milestones called for are First, for the head of each agency to propose a plan to OMB within 180 days to reorganize for greater efficiency, effectiveness, and accountability. OMB will also invite the public to share their suggested improvements to the organization and function of the executive branch. And finally, OMB will submit a proposed plan to the president that integrates input from these sources within 180 days of the public comment closing date. Prior to the planned submittal, OMB will also be tasked with assessing whether the private sector or state or local governments are better positioned to deliver current government functions, whether individual functions have any redundancies, and whether the programs provide enough public benefit to justify their cost. Reaction to all of this was, as you might expect, mixed. In the pro corner, as former OMB controller Dave Mader, who called the action plan sound policy, and noted that OMB budget examiners already have some ideas for gaining efficiency. He also pointed out that GAO annually identifies plenty of programs where there is overlap and duplication among federal agencies. However, other observers from the government, industry associations, and political arenas expressed concerns about only having limited sub-cabinet appointees presently in place to carry out the reorganization plan concentrating so much authority at OMB for eliminating and combining programs that just a limited amount of low-hanging redundancy fruit remains at this point, since agencies long ago mined the easy wins during prior lean years, and the need to involve states in a process that will likely cede some federal functions to them. Going hand-in-hand hand with the reorganization order is President Trump's management agenda which calls for taking an evidence-based approach using available data to improve the government's programs and services. In a not-so-subtle sign the administration is taking this agenda seriously, it appeared at the front of the budget request instead of its customary spot at the back. The plan identifies focus areas such as tackling acquisition approaches that are too cumbersome, IT that is outdated by the time it is deployed, hiring talent, use of real property, and bill paying. The administration set a target of 2020 for goals like rolling back low-value compliance requirements and devoting more resources instead to mission achievement, improving program outcomes in part by adopting leading practices from the private and public sectors, and holding agencies accountable for improving program performance. The management agenda also generated a great deal of reaction, most of it quite positive. Former OFPP Director Steve Kelman said the agenda closely tracks mainstream good government proposals 
for federal management improvement. He also praised the reduction of compliance requirements to allow managers to focus on managing and appreciated that Trump is not seeking to reinvent the wheel for management agendas, but instead is continuing and amplifying previous administration's version. However, he does raise a little bit of a red flag regarding OMB's role in regularly reviewing agency progress, implementing tracking of critical performance metrics, and showing improvement with those metrics. He instead advocates that this be handled internally at each agency. Partnership for Public Service President Max Dyer noted that data-focused approach is a good way to run government more effectively, and Robert Shea, a former OMB official, said the combo of management priorities and the government reorg executive order could provide a transformative management agenda. His concern is that government officials could commandeer the evidence-based approach to improving programs to justify cuts or eliminations, rather than use it for its intended purpose of spurring improvement. On March 27th, the administration announced the creation of the White House Office of American Innovation, or OAI for short. This nonpartisan SWAT team of former business executives is charged with incorporating new ideas from successful private companies to change the federal bureaucracy's status quo in areas including technology overhauls, infrastructure investment, and procurement reform. While it is available to help all federal departments, the group will be giving particular focus to the Department of Veterans Affairs. The OAI will be led by Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor. So all this activity that we've been talking about will naturally have many trickle-down effects on the federal workforce itself. The Office of Personnel Management is working to help agencies systematically approach a reassessment and any necessary rejiggering of their staffing model with the release of the Workforce Reshaping Operations Handbook. The guide provides agency heads with, uh, and human resources officers with options and specific procedures to ensure that reshaping efforts comply with merit system laws and regulations. Some of the key nuggets from the 119-page document include considering timing and scope of reorganization efforts, communications capabilities that are already in place, labor management relationships, whether the less disruptive process of reshaping functions can be taken as opposed to closing entire operations, and what alternatives may exist beyond reductions to workforce. Jeff Neal, Foreman Chief Human Capital Officer for DHS, strongly urge agencies to go ahead and start using the OPM handbook now to start analyzing their possible paths and not wait for passage of a budget to begin preparing. While the handbook concerns the future of the federal workforce, the main workforce news for March was exemptions to the civilian hiring freeze. An OPM spokesperson reported mid-month that the agency had exempted administrative law judges, hearing support staff, and processing center employees at the Social Security Administration as well as general managers at the Defense Nuclear Facility Safety Board. In accordance with the application process, OMB outlined in a January 30th memo on how to implement the freeze. The Army developed its own process to streamline freeze exemption applications within its ranks. Uh, commander hiring requests are now funneled through a new single centralized email inbox. Approvals usually come within 24 to 48 hours, and the Army increased its exemptions from roughly 5,500 to 20,000 in the first week of using the new approach. The Air Force has its secretary making approvals on a position basis. 
Uh, the service has so far exempted 54,000 people, including childcare, cyber, and depot maintenance workers. Uh, Lieutenant General Gina Grosso, Deputy Chief of Staff for Manpower, Personnel, and Services, remarked, we are not totally fully manned, but we're close. Department of Veteran Affairs Secretary David Shulkin announced in a March 13th memo that he has exempted 125 more positions at the agency, including roles that provide essential veterans benefits claims processing and adjudication services, cybersecurity operations, law enforcement and criminal investigation roles, and roles within the Office of Acquisition, Logistics, and Construction that directly affect patient care. Those positions alone affect 43 locations across 13 states. Besides its exemptions, VA is allowing employees to be reallocated through temporary promotions, non-competitive reassignments, and details to meet the agency's highest priorities. The Senior Executives Association on March 9th reached out to OPM and OMB to petition to fill the approximately 811 currently vacant non-career positions with career senior executive service personnel. The association explained it's very difficult for senior career leaders to function effectively in acting positions since they lack the full authority required to do their jobs. Many of them are also pulling double duty due to the hiring freeze and the natural attrition that occurred after the administration transition. Like February, March was a month when we saw scant evidence of new policies or rulemaking, as agencies have been concentrating on adjusting to the sea of recent changes. So we have just a very brief recap to make you aware of what occurred in the month. The Office of Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy has updated the list of federal prison industries product categories that must now be procured using competitive or fair opportunity procedures. DOD's Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics issued an updated instruction related to transportation and traffic management on March 7th. The instruction explains how transportation programs and DOD component responsibilities should support DOD supply chain material management goals, and it names U.S. Transcom as the entity in charge of acquiring common user transportation and related services. And to close this small section out, there are a few updated chapters in the Department of Energy's Acquisition Guide that came out last month, so be sure to check those out. Let's move on to assorted new and noteworthy developments for March. To deal with budgetary constraints, the Army is taking a non-developmental approach to its vehicle acquisitions. Instead of acquiring entirely new combat vehicles to replace existing ones, it is prioritizing incremental upgrades to the current fleet using mature technology. Not only is this method more cost-effective, but it also makes for faster acquisition, and the service is still able to work on closing capability gaps later on. However, critics argue that the Army is too focused on getting funding in place before beginning a new development and procurement program. The Army could instead at least publicize its plans concepts and requirements for future platforms and systems, which would better position it to not only gain congressional funding support, but also solicit technological insights from industry early on. The General Services Administration is helping the Navy save time and money uh, when it buys office products equipment, and services by using GSA's reverse auction e-tool. 
GSA and the Navy signed a memorandum of understanding that allows the service to use the e-tool. Auctions take place through GSA and VA multiple award schedule contracts and other blanket purchase agreements. The Navy has been GSA's most active user of the auction platform, awarding over $22 million in reverse auction procurements and saving an average of almost 8% compared to standard pricing. Meanwhile, the Defense Information Systems Agency is looking to incorporate two innovative acquisition methods used by the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, known as DIUX, in its, into its own acquisition processes, with an eye to surmounting limited budgets and lengthy acquisition times. One of these strategies is to use more other transaction authority, or OTA, structures, which allow customers to make a transaction without using a contract grant or cooperative agreement. The method is particularly popular with smaller companies new to DOD contracting, just the kind of groups DOD wants to involve more actively, since OTAs offer flexible negotiation and quicker awards. The other acquisition change DISA is considering is leveraging more capacity service type contracts, which DISA has successfully used in their computer centers. Uh, this would allow the agency to buy cybersecurity as a managed service and integrated package. Uh, it would also be easier to contract for and allow rapid change out of technical components when leasing equipment. The State Department is leveraging an existing technology transformation service agile blanket purchase agreement to develop a new application to support staffing functions. First off, there's a tech benefit here to point out. By using the existing BPA, State expects a quick delivery of the beta version of its new app called TalentMap, possibly as soon as the end of the year. There's also an operational benefit. The app will replace the Foreign Service bidding application, improving the efficiency and speed with which Foreign Service employees are matched to compatible job assignments an outcome that's both mission-supportive and eases internal processes for the agency's administrative staff. The General Services Administration is looking to experiment with augmenting the federal government's web-based public interaction opportunities by launching a private program aimed at eventually helping agencies to create their own intelligent personal assistants, um, also called IPAs, similar to Apple's Siri or Amazon's Alexa. GSA is predicting that eventually citizens will rely on IPAs even more than they do on regular websites, hence the research into this artificial intelligence channel. The pilot will provide agencies with related policy, guidance, and toolkits to build an IPA structure internally or piggyback on other virtual assistant services. GSA's goal is not necessarily to increase the number of IPAs out there, but more to help agencies to decide if it's a good fit for them and the specific services or information they offer. Just think, at some future point on April 15th may find you simply saying, hey, Alexa, file my tax return. The pilot is expected to take place sometime roughly across the March-April timeframe with resulting guidance, tools, and tips to follow. Agencies should take note that new research finds the public engaging with the government online more now than ever. The study found that websites are the most popular engagement channel for the public. Web growth has been five times faster than all in-person channels or other digital channels. Another important finding 
digital customers were more satisfied by two percentage points than non-digital customers. So that's a good thing to know. It's less intensive for you to support the public with well-designed and informative web pages than dedicated staff members, and it will leave clients happier as well. With that said, a study from the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation determined nearly 92% of the most accessed federal websites are falling short on at least one of seven standard benchmarks, including page load speed, mobile friendliness, and accessibility. Researchers said the issues need to ideally be addressed at two levels. From a government-wide perspective, the White House should support website modernization sprints, require federal sites to meet page load speed requirements, and most critically, collaborate with Congress to start a capital fund for agency IT upgrades. Now, if we had a nickel for every time someone suggested a tech modernization fund, we'd be able to start one ourselves. Agencies can take action too, though paying attention to what their users say about the website is key. They can conduct surveys, which should be closely reviewed for actionable feedback, and organizations should also conduct web analytics, tracking how people behave within the platform to ensure their websites are actually functioning as intended and all the customers leave satisfied. As partial offset to not hiring more uniformed or civilian airmen, the Air Force is looking to contractor partners to take over flying of its satellites, which would then free service members to focus on more mission-critical operations. Though this is just a possibility under consideration for now, the Air Force is putting some related initiatives into motion. For example, its wideband communications services analysis of alternative study is consulting industry on the commercial capabilities available and what the service might need in terms of wideband satellite communications to maintain a competitive advantage. The Census Bureau is on track to save nearly $1. million annually by moving to an automated electronic signature process for employee performance reviews. The product is called eSign Live. It's a cloud-based product and it will relieve the Bureau of having to physically mail papers back and forth to obtain a physical signature, which costs about five bucks a pop per field employee. Now, not only is the move cost-cutting, but it's far more efficient from an operational standpoint. There's no mailing the hard copies back and forth, getting them to the right department, processing and filing them, and with the paper trail, well, not literal paper trail, <laughs> easily accessible and viewable online, it also supports improved transparency. Remote employees are able to use the system from their laptops with a derived credential chip technology for identity management, and regional and headquarters employees can use eSign Live right on their desktop computers. If the rollout uh, is successful, uh, the Census Bureau could expand e-signatures to other processes, and the Department of Commerce may further incorporate e-signatures into other human resources systems. For agencies using physical access control systems, called PACS for short, the General Services Administration has issued a PACS customer ordering guide to help agency partners acquire solutions through multiple award schedule 84. The guide outlines just what PACS are, how and where to purchase PACS solutions, and offers a frequently asked question section and a sample statement of work. The guide aligns with the July 2016 Office of Management and Budget Circular A130, managing information as a strategic resource. 
We talked earlier about DISA adopting certain DIACS approaches into its acquisition. The DIACS is now working to help DOD as a whole get more familiar with and better leverage other transaction authority, again OTA, in its contracting processes. The group is getting to be pretty expert on the approach. So far, DIACS has completed 21 contracts using OTA. And impressively, they clocked an average time of just 78 days between submission and signed contract. So it's accelerated acquisition indeed. DIACS is now prepared to share its OPA or OTA tips and tricks and train DOD procurement officials on just how to wield this useful tool. You may think of them as a tech buying group, but Managing Director Raj Shah explained that empowering officials to use the flexible OTA process actually is a key part of DIACS's stated goal, which is to cultivate agile culture change and encourage DOD to take more experimental risks. NASA has chosen 133 proposals valued at nearly $100 million from over 112 small U.S. businesses for phase two of its small business innovation research program. The proposals relate to the research and development of technologies that could support future missions into deep space, including multifunctional, lightweight, metallic materials, compact, high-powered, three-dimensional light detection systems for unmanned aircraft, technology that melds together a plastic recycling system, dry heat sterilization, and 3D printer to create food and medical-grade devices. This is a pretty cool idea. You could put your empty plastic water bottle in one end and get a freshly printed spoon, or better yet, fork out of the other end. So, and finally, technology that will allow constellations of individual satellites to fly in precise formation and perform coordinated science. Each contract could be worth as much as $750,000 and has a period of performance of up to two years. Projects that successfully complete Phase 2 could be commercialized in Phase 3 of the program. GAO released an analysis of civilian agency contract obligations from fiscal years 2011 through 2015. After analyzing data from the Federal Procurement Data System, GAO found that obligations decreased by roughly 7% over that period and defense obligations dropped by nearly 31%. Among other findings, uh, GAO found that sequestration had more of an effect on defense appropriations. About 60% of government-wide contract obligations are for services. However, that number rises to 80% for civilian agencies. The government-wide competition rate remained relatively steady, a touch less than two-thirds of all contract obligations. DOD's rate, uh, rate decreased from 58% to 55% on that front. And finally, uh, federal agencies used fixed-price contracts for an average 63% of contract obligations and indefinite delivery vehicles uh, for approximately half the time. OIG personnel from the Departments of Defense, Transportation, and Energy revealed that they are challenged by too much data and not enough staff. For example, at DOE, there are just 62 investigators at an agency of over 100,000 employees. And at DOT, officials reported knowledge gaps between their staff and how to effectively use available data to identify fraud, waste, or abuse. Another factor is simply there is so much data. Any investigation can require sifting through terabytes of data. DOE suggested this is a responsibility area ripe for a shared approach. And DOD is encouraging the creation of a central clearinghouse to curate the best investigative knowledge and resources. The Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency 
has reportedly asked OMB repeatedly for centralized IG funding since sharing administrative operations and purchasing power could greatly increase efficiency and savings. Inspector generals have also voiced concern makers over how President Trump's proposed $54 million budget cuts will affect civilian agencies, uh, specifically in critical program operations and IT procurement and management. Many IGs have been forced to cut back on their oversight work as a result of hiring freeze-related staff reductions and are worried that this could adversely affect their respective agencies. One federal official countered, though, that IT is less likely to go pear-shaped than other functions, characterizing IT as a basic utility the government needs to operate, such as electricity and fuel. The Department of Veterans Affairs still hasn't decided whether to keep its veterans Health Information Systems Technology Architecture, VISTA for short, or switch to a commercial electronic health record system. But now a Georgia Tech-led team has come up with a way VA might have its cake and eat it too, a digital health platform that can break data down into component parts and share with other systems. The prototype digital health platform includes 21 interoperable standardized application programming interfaces, or APIs. To simplify the idea in your head, picture filling out a form on a website. You have the field for your name, for your address, and so on. The site knows what data belongs in those places. This is a similar kind of idea. Uh, the APIs manage the data and would have mechanisms for VA to direct how that data should flow and be organized. This technology also allows VISTA to talk to other electronic record systems like the EHR DOD is currently rolling out. Other private sector systems or even personal health monitoring devices like a Fitbit, this tech translates and makes things compatible. So now VA wouldn't need to necessarily choose between Vista and a commercial product. It could pull the best parts of both. So this could really be a really major breakthrough for DOD and VA who've been struggling with the EHR challenge for years. The concept may also offer a future solution for the many agencies currently struggling to manage multiple legacy information systems that don't necessarily play very nicely together. Let's talk about some of the best practices we saw in March news. Maybe you'll find something here you'd like to test out yourself. Agencies and DOD are considering ways to emulate and expand the Office of Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policies Successful Service Acquisition Workshop, or SAWS, which it has been conducting for major services acquisitions valued at $1 billion or more. SAWS call for all acquisition stakeholders to participate in developing requirements before moving forward with any strategy. Now, yes, it's time-consuming and logistically challenging to get a bunch of high-level stakeholders into a room for an extended meeting, but it is a key step in performance-based contracting. It clearly prioritizes project goals and it demonstrably improves the outcomes. Because the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act requires DOD to update its 2016 services acquisition guidance, the department is now deciding if it will perhaps broaden which of its own programs use SAWS, perhaps lowering the existing $1 billion threshold to encompass other less pricey programs. And the General Services Administration has gotten in on the act 
GSA adopted the SAW approach when it developed a blanket purchase agreement for identity monitoring and data breach response services. That vehicle ultimately earned a best-in-class designation from the Office of Management and Budget. It's certainly an adoptable approach that other agencies could emulate as well. The Defense Contract Management Agency's Garden City, New York office used a strategy that reduced delinquent schedules by 17% in 2016 compared to its 2015 baseline, plus achieved a 52% reduction in schedules that had been delinquent over a year. The DCMA team employed a variety of different approaches, including performing comprehensive data reviews, establishing additional metrics to track progress, and visiting contractor facilities more frequently. For example, supervisory industrial specialists would investigate who held responsibility for causing a shipment delay. When it was the contractor, they would collaborate to determine the best course of corrective action, perhaps a modification to extend delivery dates. When the government was accountable, they would communicate with the customer to identify the cause and work out a solution. DCMA also worked to resolve data errors that were pulling their overall metrics down, shipments with expired estimated dates, for instance. One agency that has gotten rave reviews from customers over the past six consecutive years in the annual American Customer Satisfaction Index, and they also reached the highest score ever recorded in 2016, is the Department of Veterans Affairs National Cemetery Association. Customer satisfaction is very important considering NCA's mission. They manage nearly 170 cemeteries, monuments, and burial lots throughout the country for fallen soldiers and their eligible family members. Some of their success lies in fostering a personal connection with their client base. 75% of their staff are either a military veteran themselves or they have family ties to either veterans or active duty service military members. So they do have a very special understanding of their clients. This may or, not be, may or may not be something that you could replicate at your own organization, but it's worth thinking about when it does become possible to hire again uh, to bring on staff that bring a special perspective to your agency's mission. Also, particularly considering the sensitive nature of their work, the agency strongly encourages a culture of compassion among its workforce, and they're very conscientious about rewarding employees that go the extra mile in supporting grieving families. Making your values clear and recognizing those who uphold them is something any organization can do. Another strength of the agency, and definitely one other agencies can emulate, is they conduct a really extensive in-depth training program. For example, the caretakers and field representatives get a deep education in the geological and weather characteristics of the site that they're going to be serving. And another thing NCA ensures is that all employees are very clear about the role they play in mission support, and they know that they have a very vital part in supporting that. NCA also has a scrupulous performance tracking process. Clients are invited to respond to highly detailed surveys that gauge their feelings on service efficiency, facility appearance, and overall satisfaction with the agency. It in conducts internal audits, too, and reports findings directly to management to ensure accountability. The agency is next looking to expand users' experience through technology. NCA envisions maybe launching an app that would provide cemetery visitors with information about a site's interred veterans via their smartphones or tablets. The director of the Defense Logistic Agency Distribution Future Plans Directorate received the DLA Superior Civilian Service Award for an innovative approach to program management for storage and distribution operations 
supporting warfire requirements. Scott Rossbaugh and a team of Central Command planners helped shift transport modes from air to surface to save more than $13,000 for every ton of material they were moving. They also consolidated excess storage and distribution facility capacity and integrated storage and distribution missions from where they were at 16 different DLA disposition service sites into DLA distribution, resulting in a 10% production increase. Overall, Rossbaugh's team successfully led over 135 local improvement projects and 35 enterprise-level projects. They reduced warehouse space by 35,000 gross square feet, and they've saved over $6 million to date. DOD's Office of Inspector General found that the Defense Commissary Agency is achieving cost savings and obtaining higher quality products through a new $16 million process for purchasing fresh fruit and vegetables for Pacific Theater commissaries. The newly rolled out purchase process requires produce to be locally sourced and purchased at the lowest possible cost from in-country contractors instead of having it shipped from the U.S. The new contract makes contractors responsible for produce transportation costs and for establishing a supply chain that can meet the fresh produce contract requirements. By shifting transport costs to contractors, and again, uh, via much shorter supply chain, when compared to the old uh, ship it from the U.S. method, the agency is saving an average of $8.3 million per year, even with a 7% increase on most products to offset contractors' transportation costs. Commissary produce remains cheaper than local market retail prices, and the quality of the produce available to defense personnel has also reportedly improved. Closing data centers has helped the federal government save $2.5 billion, according to GAO, but the agency says another $5 billion in savings could be achieved with more balanced progress across agencies. A total of 4,400 centers have been closed down between 2010 and 2016, but just four agencies accounted for 95% of the resultant savings. Another area where agencies can improve on data center costs is installing automated monitoring tools to keep track of server use and power usage effectively. Currently, only 120 of the 4,600 data centers still owned and operated by agencies have these tools. Sometimes you have to spend money to save money. Uh, that so says a new report from the IBM Center for the Business of Government. The research shows that the government could lower its overhead costs and acquisition risks to, and improve outcomes if it focuses more on the cost-benefit ratio of available technologies, particularly ones that are interconnected and therefore streamline internal processes, and what's referred to as standardized business reporting. That's basically where agencies use similar types of information for their internal processes and process that information on systems that aren't too specialized and proprietary to prevent interagency compatibility. A white paper from the Data Foundation and PricewaterhouseCoopers suggests that transitioning to those sorts of standardized open federal data formats could save $10 billion in annual compliance costs. The paper's authors readily admit it would be nearly impossible to build a single reporting form to meet requirements of all U.S. regulatory agencies but even just launching a shared dictionary could help agencies to create much better data uniformity. Um, Congress, however, would need to take the first step in making that happen. Let's see what's new in acquisition legal developments. Uh, Army Materiel Command Chief Gus Perna is pleading with contractors not to automatically launch a protest every time they lose a major award. Uh, anticipation of protests slows the acquisition process as procurement officials make schedules longer 
to accommodate the 90 or more day delay a protest or several protests uh, can cause. Uh, contracting personnel also move much more deliberately, one might even say slowly, to ensure they cross all the keys and dot their eyes to try to prevent protestable issues. Uh, also, as more contracting uh, is tasked up to uh, address protests, uh, guess what happens to actual project schedules? Major impact, General Perna says. The Army's internal actions uh, will help mitigate the protest problem too, he noted. Uh, acquisition reforms under development will put greater emphasis on the entire life cycle of programs, which should help the Army make more defensible cases for why it selected the sources it did. GAO sustained in part and denied in part uh, protesting issues with the Navy's evaluation of an awardee's cost and past performance and the protesters' technical proposal on a seaport-enhanced task order, better known as Seaport E for engineering and professional services. Unsuccessful offerer Target Media Mid-Atlantic objected to the agency's analysis of the awardee's cost realism and the employee compensation plan. The RFP specified that both of those items would be evaluated. GAO agreed that the Navy's cost realism analysis of awardee Imagine One Technology and Management did not reasonably assess the likely cost stemming from the firm's proposed staffing approach. GAO said the Navy should have compared the winning proposal's direct labor costs to prevailing market rates or to rates paid to incumbent staff. So GAO sustained this line of the protest. Regarding the employee compensation plan evaluation, Target Media alleged it was never conducted. And since GAO could find no Navy documentation to counter that claim, it sustained this line of protest as well. Uh, GAO denied other arguments brought by the unsuccessful bidder, but found enough potential wrongdoing to conclude Target Media was competitively prejudiced and that the Navy's existing best value determination could be wrong. It recommended the agency properly evaluate cost realism professional compensation plans and reevaluate the source selection decision as a whole. Besides the usual takeaway of being sure to do the things your RFP says you will, remember the cost realism analysis is important as bidders propose costs and actions sometimes don't match. GAO also sustained in part and denied in part another DOD protest this time taking issue with the U.S. Transportation Command's evaluation of past performance and best value trade-off of an indefinite delivery indefinite quantity contract for freight transportation services. The unsuccessful offer XPO Logistics Worldwide Government Services took issue with DOD's determinations regarding the awardee Crowley Logistics past performance. DOD rated the 16 efforts submitted as somewhat relevant with satisfactory confidence and the awardee's ability to perform the proposed work. However, XPO said, those past projects were tiny compared to the $3 billion maximum value of the prospective contract. The awardee's prior projects ranged from between under 1% of that value to 2%, the protester argued. DOD countered with a different mathematical formula. It took the average value of each month of each prior project and compared it to the base period of the new contract. The key phrase here is base period, because the option years had a much higher value than the contract's two-year base. Unsuccessful bidder XPO, on the other hand, 
used the entire potential contract value when they made their complaint. GAO ultimately sided with XPO's calculation method, saying DOD only looking at the lower value base period unreasonably distorted the comparison. It added that DOD also did not document any of this math anywhere. So GAO recommended DOD reevaluate Crowley's past performance and potentially make a new source selection or amend the solicitation, hold discussions with offers, and seek revised proposals. Okay, so the takeaway here. Be sure you document your calculation approaches and be sure they have a very reasonable basis. Next, we have a DOD protest case that moved beyond GAO to the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, or COFC. This case involved Level 3 communications, alleging that its proposal was unfairly found technically unacceptable in a Defense Information Systems Agency lowest price technically acceptable procurement when the agency could have simply reached out for a minor clarification. Level 3's proposal was $38 million less than awardee Verizon Deutschland for the contract for a telecommunications circuit between Germany and Kuwait. The contracting officer had concerns about Level 3's proposed circuit route, despite the bidder saying in writing it would follow the same route as the incumbent contractor. Level 3 argued that any issues could have been easily resolved with a quick request from the contracting officer. COFC agreed that DISA was unreasonable in not seeking clarification, that the CO's lack of action and any bitter discussion could be seen as an abuse of discretion, especially with the large difference in price between Level 3 and Verizon. COFC also noted DISA treated the offerers differently. The agency marked down Level 3 for not expressly certifying a subcontractor held a certain accreditation. But winner Verizon had the same issue in their proposal and was not similarly dinged. The issue with Level 3's evaluation was enough for COFC to issue a permanent injunction for work on the contract. In a further twist, DISA informed the court, both orally and in writing, that Verizon would not begin work until December 2016. However, work on the contract actually had already begun in June, in June 2016. COFC was not pleased at this very large discrepancy in DISA's information to the court and indicated it would report both DISA's abuse of discretion and misrepresentations to the DOD Office of Inspector General and Senate Armed Services Committee. Two lessons here. Pick up the phone and call the contractor to resolve a simple question if it could save you $38 million. And be sure you are accurate in what you tell federal courts to prevent any appearance of deliberate misleading. Moving on to a review of the top changes to acquisition regulations, similar to our policy section, this remains uh, pretty quiet right now. Uh, the VA intends to undertake the major project of reviewing and updating the VA acquisition regulations to reflect the FAR. The agency plans to take this effort in phase chunks, according to a proposed rule published March 13th, which would aim to remove redundant and duplicate material already covered by the FAR and add new regulations and policies, delete outdated material or information and correct inconsistencies, remove any internal procedural guidance, and renumber VAR references to align with FAR numbering. Comments on these plans are being accepted through May the 12th. SBA has issued a notice of intent to terminate a class waiver to the non-manufacturer rule for rubber gloves, such as those worn by surgeons or electricians, and used for examination, manufacturing, or household-type uses. Termination would require small businesses providing such gloves to either provide their own or those produced by another small business. 
is the period to submit comments and source information closed on March 29th. New rates went into effect March 1st for civilian DOD personnel for government employees on official travel in Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, the Northern Mariana Islands, and possessions of the U.S. as per civilian personnel per DM Bulletin number 305. And finally, 29 individuals and entities ranging from Chinese citizens to the Eritrean Navy and a Russian aviation school have managed to work their way into being banned from government contracting for two years under the Iran, North Korea, and Syria Nonproliferation Act. The move also prevents them from participating in U.S. assistance programs and selling munitions, and it terminates any of their defense sales or construction contracts and suspends their export control licenses. And that is it for our look back at March. If you're a government agency subscriber to the Virtual Acquisition Office, you can always read more about any of the covered headlines on the same VAO page where you find your daily news. And to our iTunes subscribers, thanks as always for tuning in. If you have any questions on how to gain access to the Virtual Acquisition Office, please email VAOCustomerCare at go2vao.com. Join us again next time for our VAO team recap of key acquisition developments. Thank you again for joining us today. Goodbye.